Do you think so? 40 years ago, your FBI was founded hunting down John Dillinger. Now, we have extreme violence between strangers. We travel around the country and teach FBI techniques to cops. You guys mind if I bother you for a minute? She was found cuffed and lashed to the bed. What people won't do to each other. There's nothing people won't do. How can we help? Psychopaths are convinced that there's nothing wrong with them, so these men are virtually impossible to study. Yet you have found a way in near-perfect laboratory conditions. Hello, ladies. That's what makes this so exciting and potentially so far-reaching. We all love that show, The Mind Hunters. Uh, finally, we have our guest on. Uh, so, putting together a crime scene, what? Who is the perpetrator? We, this is something that we think about all the time now. But back in the seventies, this was not something that that the FBI did. Ann Wolbert Burgess is, was one of the FBI agents who was on the ground floor of criminal po- profiling back in the nineteen seventies. She has a new book, Killer by Design: Murders, Mind Hunters, and My Quest to Decipher the Criminal Mind. Welcome to the show, Ann. How are you? Fine. Thank you very much, Karen. So for those who don't know the history, can you tell our listeners briefly about the FBI's creation of this behavioral science unit, referring to by some uh, in, in the Mind Hunters? Right. It started really back around the uh, mid-1950s when Howard Teton and uh, uh, Agent Mulcovey had had these informal meetings with the agents after their classes were over, and they'd sit around and talk about cases as they were coming in where they needed to find out who the suspect was. And this later developed, the the one person who was the uh, student was Robert Ressler. And Bob Ressler really got interested in this, and he was teaching criminal psychology, and he figured he'd better go out and talk to some criminals so that he could teach the course better. And so he was going out uh, on weekends when he was on what they call these road schools and uh, talking with um, with them. At the same time, William Webster, who is now the new director of the FBI, said that the training division, the FBI Academy, should actually be doing their own research. So he very much said that the instructors, who were the special agents at the um, Academy, could start their own research. And so this is where Bob Ressler now was able to kind of turn his uh, rogue kind of interviewing of criminals into something specific. And he uh, he took a partner, John Douglas, who was new to the unit. And because I was down there lecturing on rape victimology and had uh, worked with Roy Hazelward to do some of his research, they uh, John and Bob came to me and said, would you be interested in what our project was? And so I listened to some of the interviews that he was having and said, I really felt he had something there. And if you have watched Mindhunter, I know you played some of it earlier, that the uh, third episode is when they come up to um, my school in Boston and we talk about it. And it was just very, very impressive. So that's really how it started, that uh, I said we had to tighten up or develop a methodology. So I became the methodologist in this. My uh, background as a researcher, uh, I was able to, of course, draw on on those um, factors. So we designed a study, and that's how it all started, to look at the profiling, to look at the 
first look at characteristics of serial killers so that we could better define some of these profiling characteristics. Now, a lot of the <clears throat> a lot of the stuff that the data that you get or were sourced from some of the interviews that were done with some of the serial killers. And and my question is always, and, and uh, anyone who listens to my show knows, I represented a high profile or I say low profile serial killer here in Chicago uh, many many years ago, and so I kind of understand a little bit about the the mind of the sociopath. And they're very manipulative and they're very deceptive, and they're they're not really you can't really rely on them to tell you the truth. They almost always say what you think you know they they want you that you expect to hear so how do you rely on someone who's sitting in jail who you knew has done horrible things and you know they're a psych you know sociopath and you know that they might be lying to you well sure um but i think the agent had a very uh special or more unique role here because they they commanded a lot of authority i mean just going into the prisons and talking with them gave the criminal that they were interviewing a serial killer kind of a status if you will that they were coming to talk to them so it really played into the killer's ego the agents also uh, we got all the records, helped them with all the background records. So they knew the case cold when they went in so that if anything deviated from what they had read in the record, they call them on it. So that uh, very quickly, I think, uh, as well as I understood how the interviewers were going and as I read them, that they they got as close to a true um report as possible for example david berkowitz he's he started that dog uh he had something about a dog and i remember this is son of sam excuse me son of sam Sam. yes thank you yeah son of sam and they they said they essentially said we don't believe you you know this is not so there's no dog talking to you and and he smiled at that point and realized that they had had really caught him and they felt that after that, that they were able to get more important information. So they would do that. They would know whether uh, it was wonderful to have the background records so that we could repl- rely on them as uh, we then compared them to the content that they were telling the agents. And because we were using a standard questionnaire, uh, we were able to see if they were kind of outliers, if you will, you know, were some of them really going off track. And if there was any question that they were, uh, that it was not true, we would take the records report for it. So, you know, some of the um, little anecdotes in your book are just amazing. There was one, um, and I forgot exactly who the killer was, but um, the agents were saying, well, this person has probably got like a, you know, a three-piece suit, buttoned really tight, maybe a speech impediment. Maybe this person is going to call the family uh, on the anniversary of the crime. And in that case, like all three of those things were true. So how does... I mean, that sounds like psychic stuff. That sounds like, um, you know, that sounds like voodoo. Uh, how how do you reach those types of conclusions that those things might happen in a case from looking at the crime scene and looking at the victims? Because they're looking at the behavior and because they are looking at the personality background. And one of the cases, one of the examples that um, John Douglas gives in his Mindhunter book is on David Carpenter. Now, David Carpenter was out in the um, Los Angeles area, I think Santa Cruz, at a time in the early 80s when there are a lot um, 
Kemper. Ed Kemper was there mulling a, a series of, of killers. So he uh, profiled, this was, David Carpenter was the trailside killer. He would go to these parks, and if there was a lone female, that's the way he would get her. And as John said, he would, uh, he figured out from the crime scene that he was, he would approach the victim from the back and he would immediately control her some way. And what, uh, it was a blitz style attack. And he said, he figured that this was someone that's asocial, not antisocial, asocial, more withdrawn, uh, shy, not able to, engage in any kind of uh, conversation. And so one of the things that he said, he got just about everything right. He said it was going to be a white male. He felt it would be early 30s. He said that he would um, uh, race. uh, So race was the same, white on white, which is pretty standard. But the thing he said at the end to this group of law enforcement is that he would have a speech impediment. And like you said, you know, is this voodoo? And he said he sure hoped he was going to be right because he didn't know. But he felt that there was something in this man because of his behavior in the crime scene that spoke to his being very, not ashamed, but very sensitive to some kind of defect. He wasn't sure what type of defect, but he felt it was a speech impediment. And when they ever found David Carpenter, indeed, he had a very bad stuttering. Um, and the other thing, one of the, there was one witness that survived and he said he had very crooked yellow teeth. So those were all things specific to his mouth, if you will, and to his talking. Now what happened in court when they arraigned him is he could hardly, it took him minutes to even be able to say yes. I mean, he stammered and stuttered. And so it really came out when he was very, very anxious. One of the things that they found out, though, is that he had, when he was in control of a victim, he could give these very static kind of, you know, do this, do that, not in any conversational way, but he he had enough control when he was in control not to stutter. Oh, my gosh. So that's, just, that's, that's really fascinating. <laughs> really yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I thought it was, too. Yeah. Let's, let's take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about coming onto the crime scene. What are the, what are the important things you look at? I want to talk about the difference between organized and disorganized crimes. I also want to talk a little bit about what it was like being the only female back in the, that time to be on this uh, very interesting, um, uh, in, in this interesting group of people. You're listening to The Karen Conti Show on WGN. That was one week before I murdered my mother. I said, she's got to die, and I've got to die. More girls like that are going to die. And that's when I decided I'm going to murder my mother. I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. And she went out to a party, she got south, she came home, went to sleep. I was woken up by that, I got, came out, I walked up to her bed, she's laying there reading a paperback. As many thousands of nights before. I cut off her head, and I, and I humiliated her corpse. So there, you know, a six-year-old woman dead because of the way she raises her son and the way her son is raised, the way he grows up. And what's her closing words? I suppose you want to sit up all night and talk. Does that sound familiar, Ann? 
It sure does. That's Ed Kemper. <laughs> That's Ed Kemper. And if you watch Mindhunters, he's this very, very, very tall and large, I don't know, he's 6'9 or 6'8 uh, uh, actor who portrays Ed Kemper perfectly. He looks like him. He sounds like him. And um, this is a guy who's had, had done some very, very horrible, awful things and, and was in the process there of blaming uh, his mother. Um, right. So um, let's talk a little bit about the crime scene itself. So you have said, and, and one of the interesting parts of this is that you come from the victimology standpoint. So you come from this situation of, of, of dealing with victims of rape. And so the focus has been on this, the perpetrators, but you're focusing on the victims. So I first want to talk about the crime scene. What are the things that the profilers are looking for? And then I'm going to also ask you about what uh, what the victims, the choice of victims, says about the perpetrator. Sure. Uh, well, the organized, disorganized is the first concept, if you will, or the first way when they go to a, when the agents go to a crime scene that they're going to um, uh, kind of decide which way it is. And that gives them a starting point. And that's why it's so important. I know there's been a lot of criticism of it and so forth, but it works for them and it really helps them. It organizes where there are very few clues are going to have to work pretty hard. They probably have a pretty sophisticated killer or someone that knows how to um, avoid police. Whereas the disorganized, there are going to be a lot of clues. It's going to be a messy crime scene. There might be DNA left now now that we have DNA and forensics. And it may well be that this is someone that has a mental illness. Um, and so they're not going to have as hard a time, if you will, on catching this person because they're going to look for him that's usually going to be a male. They're going to look for him in probably in some psychiatric facility. So that is really, really important. And then the crime scene indicators are those that they try to identify, and that is what they will send back to the local police, that the local police can then look at their suspects. And those crime scene indicators are race of the victim, age of the, um, they'll be able to see victim, because that's the only thing they have at a homicide is a victim. So they'll go after age, they'll go after race, they'll go after um, location, what what was the, was the um, killer live near that area or did they have a, a vehicle that he came into the area uh should they be looking for a car you know that kind of thing also work what type of work uh, they can uh, they can profile that and that becomes important it may be the time of day that the victim was uh, encountered or that the victim was murdered uh, might imply that the the uh, killer such as in the John Gilbert case, that he would go out very early in the morning before he went to work, and he, that's when he would hunt his victims. So that is important, the work situation, who they lived with, uh, should they be looking for someone that's married or living with a parent or um, et cetera, that kind of thing. And that's what then the local police can take and look through their list. And... It, you know, and it it sounds simple, but it it can't possibly be simple because uh, because even if you, I mean, it's amazing how some of the profiles would profiles would say this person was military, this person has a probably a nine to five job, this person probably has a wife and kids, this probably person maybe have be religious, or I mean, these 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 little traits that come out in different ways are just again, I I, I keep thinking what what. Uh, you know, is this based on science or is this an art? 
It's actually, I think it's actually both, and that's what I think I write about, is that we certainly use the science as best we can, and that was the purpose of um, analyzing the data from 36 serial killers to see if they had some common factors there, and then they could use that. But they they get very good at doing this because they're doing it day after day as these cases come in. So, of course, they get good, and they they, um, have talked with so many of the criminals that that helps too and they develop it profiling isn't the only thing that they do using this data they do proactive techniques in court or they may um help in uh, doing setting up a um a polygraph uh, one of the cases in the book even though the um, suspect had passed the polygraph, they felt that it was not an adequate polygraph, and they suggested go back and do another one, and then they gave the questions to ask. So all of those things they uh, they use, because they have seen so many of these cases, it's like uh, a, a good diagnostician in a medical facility. They can tell very quickly sometimes what the diagnosis is without a whole lot of tests, because they've just seen the person over and over, or even take the COVID situation where able to um, pinpoint that even sometimes before doing the test. So I, this uh, this morning as I was getting prepared, uh, I was getting in the mood, I was turned on a Jeffrey Dahmer interview. That's what, that's what we all do when we're getting prepared for an interview. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm always surprised when I watch Jeffrey Dahmer talk because he's so mild-mannered, he's so intelligent, he seems kind of pathetic, um, he does seem a little bit remorseful, but you know, it, you look at, then you look at Gacy, who was not remorseful, who was arrogant, and, but yet Gacy had this life where he went to church, and he helped his neighbors, and he volunteered for things, and he kept, you know, his lawn nice, and he made a lot of money, and he, he was a good husband when he was married. I mean, how do these people live this life on one hand and have this secret life on the other? Is this kind of a split of a personality? Does something overcome them, do you believe? Or do you think this is something that they just, they just that's part of their life, they just do it? Well, uh, the, the data that we looked at really showed early incidents uh, had influenced, if you will, the environment or the growing up situation. There was usually something in the background in which you could pinpoint. Whether or not the person himself could recognize it or not, it certainly stuck out in our, at least in my analysis, as something. And certainly Gacy's had a lot of um, mocking and teasing and and putting down by his father, of all people, so that a male uh, authority person was important. So his need to be in control and to be dominant overrode his um, at certain points in his life that he um, he had to act out and to to get that need fulfilled. And I think that's what you see in them. The the other thing I don't think people realize is yes, the killing is impo- is certainly horrible and and terrible for the victim and family, but there's that getting away with it that is a gives them a, a almost another high that they can do all of these things and still not be caught. And certainly Gacy was very important in that, because look at how many victims he had. And even when you look at the interviews, I've got one that uh, Bob Ressler did. He keeps denying it, and he says, I don't know where all these victims came from. You know, I I helped out some of the victim families. I didn't do it. I don't know why they, you know, why, why they said I did it. So even in that sense that he denies 
any culpability for that, I think, is amazing. Don't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, at first he confessed <laughs> yeah. to it all, almost unburdened himself yeah. the night that he was arrested. And, yeah. you know, he, he, he had massive details. He had he drew them a map of where the bodies were. And, you know, and then and then he came to his senses and said, I better start denying it. And to his very death uh, bed, which was at, you know, at the prison here under the lethal injection, he still denied it. And, sure. uh, you know, and he sure. said he would always say the only thing I am guilty of is running a cemetery without a license, which he thought was very funny, you know, but, uh, right. you know, oh. there's there's a serial killer humor. But yeah, it's, uh, it, and then I guess I have to ask you this question too, is, is and we only just have a few minutes, um, would would the Gacy's of the world, would the Dahmer's of the world, would they, if they were released, I, I, I know Dahmer's dead, but, and Gacy's dead, but if you took those people out of jail, would they do it again? Is there any way to stop them? Um, I don't think there is, and we asked that question. I can just remember um, uh, John Jobert was asked that question by the lead detective after he was uh, convicted, and they said, if we let you go, would you be okay? And he said, no, I, I wouldn't. I know I would kill again. And I think many of the other uh, killers said that to us, and they also, some of them don't even go to their parole hearings because they don't want to even um, uh, apply for parole. So... My answer to your question is yes, that they would go out, and it's so part of them. It's such a obsession with them that they, and the high that they get from it is something they want to repeat, and they think about it over and over. That's what they told us. They can't get it out of their minds. It's like that, uh, I think you asked, uh, could we prevent this? Well, the uh, Michigan shooter just a couple of months ago, Right. what does he say? Look at he says, I can't get the thoughts out of my mind. Help me. He even recognized he needed help. So that's what is hard to understand of how the mind processes it over and over, almost to the point where it, it, if they don't act on it, they're going to probably just collapse mentally. I, on the other hand, I think it's a very stressful way to live your life. You know, I, I know in Gacy's case, he was working 10 hours a day. Sometimes he was killing two or three boys. Uh, I believe one night he killed three boys. You know, this this takes a lot of energy. And I and I think does, he yeah. was probably in a crisis mode when he was arrested. And I, and I, I bet he felt relief. Um, and I, you yeah. know, having talked to him in prison, I think he was pretty much happy there. I think he had an orderly life. He yep, was the he, he was the top dog. I mean, you don't get much worse than that. And he I was yeah. yeah. I love his stationery. You know, it, it was, he even had his own stationery when he, he wrote did. the letters. He had a lot of letters. It was. I mean, it, he just carried on. But he was controlled, and I think he knew that. That's what was good about it is he was controlled. These killers have to be controlled. They have to be stopped. Oop. They can't stop themselves. And Burgess, thank you so much for joining us. Killer by Design: Murders, Mind Hunters, and My Quest to Decipher the Criminal Mind. A great book. Please join us again soon.